with my picture on it. He said, I've warmed them up for you. And I was like, well, thank you very much. You know, so I, I appreciate that. And uh, But back here, I think it was about, about eight or nine months ago, I would wake up every morning and I would see that somebody had downloaded and purchased sermons off my website. And it kept being the same person. I didn't know who it was. I mean, literally every day there would be like four new ones and then all my e-courses and, and literally everything on my, on my, uh, that's on my website. And then all of a sudden I got a friend request and a little message. And he said, my name is Pastor Josiah Hodge. I'm from, I'm from South Carolina. I, I heard about you from Pastor Joshua Jones. And uh, I have just listened to everything on your website, watched all your e-courses and everything on YouTube. And I went, in like two months? I was like, Lord, have mercy. But then when we finally talked, I told him how jealous I was. I said, to be your age and get all that. It took me 33 years to get a lot of that stuff, and he's going to be able to grasp it. Of course, he's going to have to learn to walk it all out, and that's, that's, going, to, that's going to take a minute, and, uh, like it is with any of us, but just the incredible hunger that's in your pastor. I don't, I don't know about you, but that's contagious. It is. Just hunger for truth, not just wanting to know about God, but know God. You know, there's a, there's a passage of Scripture in Paul said to Timothy something very powerful one day. He said, it is God's will or God's desire that all be saved. See, most of the Western church, we put our whole focus on salvation, but then he doesn't stop there. He says, God doesn't just want everybody to be saved. He also wants everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that word knowledge is the Greek word epigenosis, and it literally means a firsthand encounter. So it's more than just having information in your head and mentally ascending to God. It's actually also experiencing what God has for you because it's not the truth that makes us free. It's the knowledge of the truth, the gnosis of the truth that makes us free. So you can, that's why Paul said to Timothy, men would ever be learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. That means you could have been in church 40 years and been like Saul and you knew all about God but until you had a Damascus Road experience, you hadn't met him yet. And I dare to say we have now almost a whole generation of people over the last 20 or 30 years raised in our churches who can tell you a lot about God, but it's more than just knowing about him. It's actually meeting him, encountering him. There's life that gets produced with that. And so I'm going to believe also with all of you that this weekend that you'll just have some kind of fresh encounter. Uh, with him, whatever that looks like, uh, all of us it's different. I'm I grew up classical Pentecostal, and you know I mean you know when when everything broke out here this last month in Kentucky because we live in the Louisville Kentucky area, and so we were only an hour and ten minutes from the Asbury you know whole revival and everything. So my family all went down when I was preaching in Michigan, and I asked both my kids. My daughter's a worship pastor. My son, uh, he's a recording artist, uh, leads worship. A preacher has a deliverance ministry. His wife's a prophet. Uh, I mean, they're, they're doing some incredible things for God. And, of course, my kids were raised on the road, and they've seen a little bit of everything. And they were like, well, Dad, it was really great. It was great to see that since COVID, we had a hard time getting folks to come back to church, and folks were standing outside for four hours just waiting to get in the building. He said, that was exciting. It was a little tame for me. He said, it was a little too Baptist. 
But, you know, I mean, my, my kids in the late 90s, I mean, we, we had meetings where folks would, like, check their, check their car keys at the door. Uh, I mean, literally because people were having to be carted out in wheelchairs because they were so drunk, uh, you know, in the Holy Spirit. And, I mean, thrown in, thrown in the car and say, hope you get home. You know, my, my, my kids are racing. It's some crazy stuff. That's some real fun stuff. And so, uh, you know, I, I think maybe it's time for uh, just some, some freshness and some of that sometime, too. So I think there's a fresh hunger uh, in the hearts of the body of Christ again. But I, I just said all that just to honor, uh, honor this, uh, this young man, I tell you. I learned a long time ago, you know, there's a reason that Paul said to Timothy, don't let anyone despise you for your youth. He didn't say they wouldn't. What he said is just just don't let them get on your nerves. Uh, because the truth is there's a lot of stuff in my 20s and 30s that I understood that, that pastors that have been in ministry 40 years just look at me and say, man, I've been to church my whole life. I never heard nothing like what you're talking about. And, of course, when I was younger, I just thought it was because I was more anointed. And then you get a little older and you realize it didn't have nothing to do with that at all. I just had a different gift than they did. I had a different mind. I had a different grace on my life because it's not about better. It's just about different. And I, I tell people I, I have a leadership summit every year where uh, I have pastors and leaders come from around the country and other countries. And uh, I tell them, I said, we're going to have a big Q&A Q &A time or Q&R time questions and responses, because if you wanted Q&A, questions and answers, you should have talked to me in my 20s and 30s when I knew everything. Uh, so I knew everything in my 20s and 30s. In my 40s, I started to realize I didn't know that much. Now in my mid-50s, I just feel a little stupid sometimes. I'm not going to lie to you, because I always thought the older I got, I'd have more answers. Instead, I realized the older I get, I have more questions, because uh, we never arrive if we're constantly growing. And so, anyway, I also said that I'm going to take five minutes for a commercial, and then we're going to get right into the message for tonight. Uh, if if uh, I'm sure most of you in here do not have a copy of my book, uh, the book is called Myths and Mistranslations, Unpacking 70 Misconceptions About God and the Bible. This book for me was 50 years of questioning stuff I was taught in church, things I was taught in seminary. Uh, I drove my parents nuts with questions. I mean, I was the guy, you know, I mean, we're, we're reading the family devotions about the fall of man, and my hand goes up at five years old. I'm like, Dad, how come God didn't start over? I mean, he's God, right? I mean, how come we just didn't start over? I mean, why do we got all this mess? Why didn't he just start over? My dad's like, uh, I'm not sure. I dedicated this book to my dad. My dad's been in ministry now 59 years, and I dedicated it to him because he taught me all of these myths. And that's not to criticize my dad. The truth is my parents' generation did the best they could with what they had. They didn't have the World Wide Web. I mean, my dad, in order to find stuff I can find on my phone right now, would have had to spend thousands of dollars to hire an interpreter and fly over to old Constantinople in Turkey and go to an ancient library to figure some of this stuff out. And now we can literally push a button. Living in the information age is an amazing day to be alive. Listen, uh, one, of my, one of my spiritual fathers, he says this all the time whenever we get together. He said, never tell your children and grandchildren when I was your age. Because he said, you were never their age. You were their years, but you were never their age. Uh, you know, you, you understand what a five-year-old goes through, but you don't know what a five-year-old goes through today because it's a different age right now. I mean, I always use the example my dad, you know, he'd tell the story. Man, I used to have to walk three miles to school. I used to tell my kids I had to walk three, three blocks to get on the bus, and my kids were like, walk. <laughs> like, who walks? You know, like, what is thou speaking of? We, we don't walk anywhere anymore. I mean, it, it's just, it's a different age, and we're now in the information age. And in the information age, everything has changed, and we don't have an excuse to be ignorant anymore. 
Because if you want to get the information, you can become an expert on about anything you want just being able to literally go on your computer. It's amazing the day we live in. And so uh, I always was the guy asking the questions. When I was in Bible school, I was the guy that would raise my hand and the professor would go, oh, boy. And I'd be like, listen, that don't make no sense. You're going to have to help me out. Because I was just taught all kinds of stuff, like things like the age of accountability. That's that's not in the Bible. Things like God God can't look on your sin because he's too holy. Anybody ever hear that? God's so holy he can't look on your sin. You ever try to find it in the Bible? You know, it's absolutely amazing the stuff that we have regurgitated that there's no scripture for. Matter of fact, the only verse that even comes close is found in the book of, uh, of the book, uh, you know, the script in Habakkuk 1.13 that says, God, you're so holy and you're so righteous. How can you look on evil? And we're like, see, God, God can't look on evil, but then there's a comma. And it goes on to say, so why do you? See, a text out of context is a con. And we've been conned to believe all kinds of stuff that's actually not even in there. Because if God can't look on sin, then Jesus wasn't God because Jesus was a friend of sinners. Sinners were comfortable around Jesus. Jesus, matter of fact, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. God doesn't run from our sin. He runs towards our sin. Sin isn't kryptonite to God. He doesn't get weak in the knees when he gets around sin. Yes, he hates sin, not because of what it does to him. It's because of what it does to his kids because it leads to death. God is not freaked out by our issues. God is the one that is pursuing us constantly in the midst of all of those issues. And so I, I hit in here a little bit everything you can imagine, things like is Lucifer really the devil? That will actually shock you because the word Lucifer is actually not in the Bible. I know it's in your King James and your New King James, uh, but it's not from the original Hebrew. It's actually the, uh, the King James uses the Latin for the Old Testament rather than the Hebrew, and the Bible wasn't written in Latin. It was written in Hebrew, and Isaiah 14 uses the name Lucifer, which is the English rendering of a Latin word for the star Venus. That's why new translations call it morning star or day star. It's not the name of the devil. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven, not Lucifer. And what did he say about him? He said he was a liar from the beginning. He didn't say he was an angel who became a liar. He said he was always a liar. So even the idea of him being a fallen angel is just a fallacy stuff. We've been taught he was the worship leader in heaven. Listen, we've been taught all kinds of stuff about the devil that literally is, is Greek mythology. It would shock you how much stuff. Y'all are, some of y'all are looking at me funny already. Just stick with me, I promise. You're like, he coming here trying to mess up everything we've been taught. No, that's not the point. It's like, do we want truth? Or, or, or do we want to believe a bunch of myth? I, I don't know about you, but, man, I'm, I'm hungry always for truth. And then this book is just full. And I, I tell people it will probably make you mad before it will make you free. Because that's what truth does to us. Normally when truth comes, we normally get angry first. And normally we get angry because how come no one ever told me this before? <laughs> and then you start to get free. And so uh, if you want to. If you want to learn how to ask better questions, I'd love to tell you this book is full of answers. I'm here to tell you, I hope it just causes you to ask better questions. I, I got rebuked one time, and uh, that one's yours. Uh, I, got re I got rebuked one time by a major leader of a, of a Bible school who told me, Jamie, he said, said it publicly, he said, you need to stop ministering questions, and you need to just minister the word. And so I took it to heart because when someone does something like that, I don't blow it off. I said, well, man, maybe I'm doing something wrong. And all of a sudden, two days later, I got back to him, and I said, well, I said, this is, this is my response. Jesus was asked 300 questions. He answered eight, and he asked over 300 more. So when the word showed up, 
he ministered questions. And I'm actually okay following the word. And, of course, I didn't get any response back, but that's okay. I wasn't trying to be ignorant. I wasn't trying to be ugly. And so, anyway, check the book out. I only have so many with me because uh, I already sold a bunch this week in North Carolina. I also have out on the table, there's little USBs that can actually go in the USB port in your car and come up on your radio. They're all MP4s. There's 62 hours of teaching. Uh, it used to be like two massive tables that uh, that was all CDs, but nobody even has CD players anymore. I don't know about you. I got a CD player. Someone sends me a CD. I'm like, well, this is irrelevant. I'm not even sure how to play this thing anymore. And now if you want a CD in a new car, you've got to pay like an extra $2,000 for a CD player. It's like crazy. And so I shrunk everything down in those little USBs, and there's 62 hours of teaching on about every kind of subject you can imagine. Tomorrow I'll talk a little bit more uh, about those. Uh, and I do a special price. They're 165 separately. You buy one of everything on the table. It's $100, and that's a book and 60-some hours of teaching. Uh, there's just there's a lot out there, and it'll be a blessing to you. And, of course, that helps us travel and do what we do and travel around the world. I am here this weekend. I get home on Monday night, and then on Friday I fly to Europe, and I'm preaching in six churches in seven days, uh, two, uh, two seminars, two com- one conference and a seminar with 40 pastors from 9 in the morning till 9 at night, and they're just going to wear me out and ask me all kinds of questions, and then uh, uh, and then some other ministry in between uh, before I fly home. So I'm looking forward, I'm looking forward to Easter. I get to be able to be home for a week and a half and rest. In Jesus' name, I'm I'm unneeded after this crazy schedule. So, anyway, take your Bibles, turn with me to First John chapter two. Let me get to my assignment for tonight. First John two. Now, one thing that happens when I come from the in the south is you may try to take notes, and I'll just probably tell you good luck because I'm a little bit of a machine gun. And normally when I'm in the South, folks in the South go, you need to slow down. <laughs> so you must be a Yankee at heart. That must be what it is. <laughs> and, uh, and so just, just stick with me. I know they'll be recording it, so you can always go back and listen later and things like that, and you can stop and pause. Uh, but the truth is I'm trying to get you as much as I can this weekend because I only get to go places normally once a year or so. So First John 2, very familiar passage, starting in verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation, actually expiation, for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, before I get to this text, uh, allow me just a little bit of time to kind of uh, kind of build up to where we're going, and we're going to kind of go into this this whole weekend. Tomorrow, uh, tomorrow night, I, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about kind of my journey and a lot of what shifted in me about 10 years ago when I had a, a pretty incredible encounter uh, literally with what, what I call liquid love. It was literally the love of God. I preached about the love of God for years. But when I had an encounter with the love of God, everything changed. It, it changed my marriage. It changed how I fathered. It changed how I treated people. I mean, people that had known me for years, l- literally. I mean, there, there's a couple churches I preached at every year for 33 years. And when I showed up to their church a few months after I had that encounter, some of them had known me already at that time for over 17 years. And they walked up to me and said, what happened to you? You are not the same person you've always been. There was just something that took place. And, and we're going to kind of dive into that a little bit tomorrow because I believe with everything in me that 
love and fear have been at war for thousands of years. And love and fear, the opposite of love, I used to think was hate, but the opposite of love is fear, because John says perfect love removes all fear because fear leads to punishment. And so it, if, love, if love removes fear, then fear also can remove love. And I was raised in a message and a movement where the message of fear was the gospel. And so I didn't know how to love, and I didn't know how to receive it, nor did I really know how to give it. Because all I knew was to fear. God was someone I was terrified of. He was Zeus with lightning bolts ready to strike me down every time Every time I, I had one wrong thought. My whole view of God was based on fear, and so I didn't really know how to love. But what I want to talk about tonight is there's really only two main mindsets that exist. Now, I'm, I'm sure there's many more, but I'm, I just want to deal with it from a a theological construct when it comes to from the early church till now. Normally, there's the arguments are between a couple different camps on how we view God. Uh, there is what's called the judicial view, which is based on God being uh, the foundation of who God is, is judge and master and ruler and sovereign. And then there is the family view or the relational view, which puts the focus on God being love, light and life, and God being father. There, there, there rarely is in most constructs and most systems, people tend to start with however you view God has everything to do with then how you view yourself and then ultimately how you view other people. Paul put it like this, we beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, we're changed into that image from glory to glory. So however we view God reflects on then how we see ourselves and then ultimately how we'll treat other people because we'll treat other people like how we feel God treats us. And so if our view of God is a little bit off, it can literally affect how we see ourselves, how we walk in in insecurities or whether we walk secure, and ultimately then how we treat, how we treat other people. I, I heard a, a little story years ago that I think goes along with this real well. There's a couple, they, they moved into a new home and they're unpacking everything and they get up on Saturday morning and, and they, they didn't have their whole dining room set up, just their breakfast nook, and they're sitting in the breakfast nook and they're drinking coffee and they look out the window, and the next-door neighbor, uh, she was putting out all kinds of linens out to, to line dry. And she had white linens and white towels and her husband's white dress shirts. He was a businessman. And, and the wife is looking out the window, and she's complaining to her husband. She said, look at that. Look how dingy those whites are. I mean, I mean, you'd think she'd know something about bleach. I mean, look at those towels. They're not even white. I mean, they look dingy. And, and look at those sheets. I mean, I can't believe anybody even want to sleep on those kind of sheets. And so three weeks go by, and it irritates her. Every Saturday, this lady is doing the same thing, and she keeps complaining to her husband. I, I need to meet her. I just need to go over there and tell her about bleach because there's no reason this stuff's this messy. Well, then the next Saturday, they're sitting there having a cup of coffee, and she looks out, and the towels are pure white. The sheets are white. His shirts are white. And she says to her husband, man, she finally figured out how to use bleach. He said, well, that could be, or I cleaned the windows yesterday. <laughs> See, the truth is the sheets were always white. The towels were always white. The shirts were always white. But her perception had to do with whether the window was a little bit muddied up or not. And so, the, see, this is the beautiful thing about God. God never changes. 
He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always been who he's always been. But our perception of him is constantly changing because what we behold, we become. What we see, we be. What we perceive, we receive. And so if my perception is off, if there's a little bit of dirt, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul said this. He said, any time Moses is preached, anytime you preach the law, he said it puts a veil over the hearts of men. In other words, it causes the window to get dirty. So when you've been raised your whole life hearing mixture, I mean, one Sunday my dad would get up and he'd say, uh, God loves everyone unconditionally. And then the next six months, if, and, but, why, how, and then all of a sudden he pulled Moses back out and tried to put us all back under a law we were never under in the first place. And Paul said, every time you bring out Moses, because he thought that that was going to keep us from sinning, but Paul said the strength of sin is the law, that actually when you preach the law to people, you actually strengthen sin in them. It doesn't remove sin, it actually makes it stronger. Matter of fact, I don't know if you've ever thought of this before, but Paul called himself the chief sinner. Now, let's be honest. What would we call a chief sinner today? We'd probably say a pedophile, a rapist, a murderer. In our mind, that would be a chief sinner. But when Paul talks about his life, he said of the law of I was blameless. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul talked about how good of a church boy he was. In other words, the chief sinner was not the chief what we think sinner was. It was the chief law keeper because the strength of sin is the law. The chief church boy was the chief sinner guy that went to church every single week and almost every single day but still didn't know God. Still eating from the wrong tree. Still eating from the tree of thou shalt and thou shalt not. Never ate of the tree of life. Still eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That means you could literally go to church your whole life and do all the good stuff and be eating still from the wrong tree. And so I read this passage to you for a reason, and, and mainly because of this. And, and your pastor has probably heard this about 20 times because uh, if he goes on YouTube, I've been stuck in First John for like two and a half, three years. Yeah, he's probably said it too. Now, now you know where it comes from. But one of the reasons I've not been able to get out of First John is First John is the only book in the Bible that tells us in noun form who God is. John 1, God is light. John 2 and 3, God is life. John 3, 4, and 5, God is love. Those are the only three things in the Bible that actually explains who God is in noun form, a person, place, or thing. Every other description of God is an adjective. And the purpose for an adjective is to further describe the noun. Whenever I go on social media and I say God is love, there's always someone that jumps on and says, yes, but God is holy. And I, I always respond and say, yes, he is. God is absolutely other. He is holy, but holy and holiness is an adjective. And the purpose for the adjective is to further describe the noun. So his holiness is based on his love because you have to start not with Moses. You don't start with God is judge. You don't start with God is just. You start with God is love, period. Only thing that's the noun. Someone else will say, but God is righteous. I'm like, of course he is. God is absolutely righteous. But again, righteous and righteousness and adjective. And so his righteousness is based on his, his love. Then the big one, God is just. Because the justice of God and the love of God obviously must be at war with each other for some reason. When God is absolutely just, God is absolutely 
a God of justice, but just and justice is an adjective. And again, the purpose for the adjective is to further describe the noun. So even God's justice is based on his love. God's justice is not our justice. God's justice, even in the Old Testament, according to Zechariah 7 verse 9, he says, practice true justice, declares the Lord, which is mercy and compassion. So God's way of justice is not retributive. It's not punitive. It's restorative. Why? Because he's a father who wants to restore his children into fellowship. He's not a judge who wants to beat the tar out of sinners. You see, if my view is that way. Matter of fact, you know, Isaiah 55 is, is a go-to verse for most of us. If you've been in church for any time at all and, and you have a relative or someone ask you something about God and you don't have an answer for it and you say, that's a good question, I don't know. Our go-to verse is Isaiah 55. Well, I don't know about that. All I do know is God's ways are higher than our ways. And his thoughts higher than our thoughts. You can't figure God out until you go back to Isaiah and you study that passage. And you know what it actually says in context? Actually, when he says, my thoughts are higher than yours and my ways are beyond yours, he's talking about God's mercy on wicked sinners. In other words, what God was saying is this, I'm nicer than you. I'm kinder than you are. I'm more merciful than you are. You Let's be honest. Most of us, if we had our beards plucked out and we'd been beaten with a cat of nine tails 39 times and we were hanging on a cross, our response probably wouldn't be, Father, forgive them. We'd probably call 10,000 angels and say, sick them, Jesus. Sick them, Daddy. Take them out. Why? Because our response is we think justice that's why I'm, I'm convinced of something. I'm convinced much of the American evangelical church prefers Moses over Jesus. Let's be honest. We like that eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth stuff. That turn the other cheek stuff. That love your enemy stuff. Eh. That don't render evil for evil. I'll take Moses. It's in the same book. might be in the same book, but it doesn't have the same value. Jesus trumps Moses. Jesus is better than Moses. Moses just did nothing but point to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus matter of fact, always was and always will be the point. Matter of fact, I read an article here six months ago that grieved me so much. There was a group, of, there was a pollster group, and they polled American evangelicals, and they found this, that more than 75% of American fundamental evangelicals, Bible-believing people, believe that Jesus' message of nonviolence, his message of turning the other cheek and loving your enemies is immoral. Immoral. Well, it doesn't surprise me because a lot of what we call Christianity is just modern-day Phariseeism because the word Pharisee means separatist. So the moment you have a mindset of those people and us people, you just became a Pharisee. And the American church don't know what to do if we got somebody to fight. I mean, we, we can't just love people unconditionally. And I learned this a long time ago that when fishermen aren't fishing, they're fighting. Hallelujah. And when we ain't busy doing what God called us to do, we've got to find something to fight about. We're going to fight about doctrine. We're going to fight about music. We're going to fight about color of carpet. We've got to find something to fight about. We've got to find somebody to fight because we almost don't know what to do when it comes to actually just really loving people. Help us, Jesus. Amen. Are you doing all right tonight? Good. All right. Do this. Go like this. Go like this. Or... 
don't know. What you talking about? Hmm. You see, I, I growing up in church, I, I'm a third generation preacher on one side of my family, second on the other. My my grandmother, uh, back in the 30s and 40s, she started churches all over Mid Michigan in what was called Brush Harbor meetings. Uh, they they were they were folks that got kicked out of the churches because they got filled with the Holy Spirit and they had to go out in the woods and clear an area and tarry for the Holy Spirit. And, and my, my grandma, you know, she was a huge influence on my life. I'm very grateful for that upbringing. But what I've, what I've also found is there's a lot of stuff I experienced that was beautiful, but a lot of stuff I was taught that was messed up. And one of them was this this view of God. I remember we had a youth Sunday one Sunday, and, and maybe some of you in here have probably seen this or experienced it, because I did. That's all we knew. And the youth did a service, and, and they put like a desk up front, and one of the youth dressed up like God and had a big, uh, you know, white hair with a big long beard and had a gavel. And then another youth dressed up like Jesus who was at the right hand, and then then they had, I think they had me play the devil for some reason. I just uh, played the devil on the other side, and then, then a youth would walk up, and the devil would come up and start accusing them because this is a picture of what goes on in heaven, and the devil's the accuser of the brother, and he's accusing them. And Jesus would step up and say, no, push me. I'd push the devil out of the way and say, this is one of mine. Daddy, remember what I did? And then I'd walk up. There'd be one that didn't know Jesus, and then I'd you know, drag him screaming and crying into hell. And, and man, that, that was just the picture we had of God. The problem with that whole picture is it doesn't exist. Because first of all, the devil was cast out of heaven a long time ago. He doesn't have any access there. And on top of it, the idea of God the Father sitting on a throne as a judge does not exist since Jesus came to the planet. How do we know that? Because Jesus says, all judgment the Father has given to the Son. So the Father is not sitting on the throne of judgment with a gavel. Matter of fact, he's sitting on a great big lazy boy. You and I are not coming into a courtroom. We come into the living room. We're coming. Why? We come boldly to the throne of grace that we might take mercy. Why? Because we have an advocate with the Father, not the judge. He's like, I'm trying to get you to see that I'm not what you always thought I was. But if you could ever perceive that you can come climb up in my lap and in no wise will I cast you out because I'm sitting on a seat that's full of grace and mercy, I'm not sitting on a judgment seat. Paul said the only one that's going to do any judgment is Jesus. Jesus is the one that will judge the quick and the dead. Jesus is the one that will judge the, the righteous and the unrighteous. And I don't know about you, but I love the way Jesus judged. Woo! Matter of fact, Jesus even said one time, and I judge no man. Woo! I'll just leave that one with you all. You can think about it for a couple years. <laughs> and so I, I read this passage. I, I'm finally getting to the passage, and I promise we'll get through this. Friday night, y'all in a hurry, right? I read this passage because, again, two main views that most of the church carries. You either have a relational view of God or people have a view of God as judge and someone we're to be afraid of. And so translators, when they translate our Bible, what most people don't realize is most of the translators translated with bias. That's why you can't just read an English translation and think you're going to fully understand it. That's why the scripture says, study to show yourself approved, not read. Because 
the Greek language is very nuanced. It has like five or six different definitions. And so the translators, regardless of their belief system, they would put a word in there or a definition that they viewed God as. And this passage is one of the main ones that I think is a gross misinterpretation. Because John says, we have an advocate with the Father. Anytime we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And so for some reason, the translators use the word advocate, which by the way, if you look up the Greek word, it's like one of the last definitions way down the page because it's actually the Greek word paraclete. And the Greek word paraclete is nearly always translated as helper or comforter. Jesus one day is making a statement in John 14 and John 15, and he said, listen, it's expedient for you that I actually no longer be here. In other words, for me to physically be here on the earth is actually not good for you because right now the Holy Spirit is limited to one body that has no veil in it, and I need to leave so I can send to you the Holy Spirit. And he said, I'm going to send you another paraclete, another helper, or another comforter. Nearly every time you read the word paraclete, in the New Testament, it's nearly always helper or comforter until 1 John. And for some reason, they like to stick the word advocate in there. But if your view of God is judicial, if your view of God is the problem with the planet was that man sinned and man deserved punishment because they went against the law, and so God had to do something to bring about the punishment, and instead of punishing us, he punished Jesus. The only problem with that whole concept is it's not a scriptural one, believe it or not. <laughs> that sometimes shocks people because that's the only gospel I was raised with. Let me ask you a question. If someone deceived your child into believing something about you that wasn't true and something about themselves that wasn't true, would you be angry at your child or the deceiver? The deceiver. So God who is love, God doesn't have love, God is love, and love is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrong, but supposedly this God who is love for 5,000 years was ticked off. That kind of doesn't sound right. But he was ticked off, not at the deceiver. He was ticked off at his kids. How many of you stay mad at your kids that long? Well, if we being evil wouldn't treat our kids that way, why would we think Abba wouldn't be a lot better than we are? But you see, that's, that's the concept a lot of people have, that God, he, he, he can't even look at you till you get in Jesus, and Jesus had to come and become the Father's Prozac and turn his frown upside down at the cross, and he pretty much saved the Father, and now he's in a good mood, but he's only in a good mood for a couple of years because then he's going to come back like Rambo someday and be all ticked off all over again and slaughter everybody. That just gets really confusing. I mean, he tells us to love our enemies, but he's going to come back and wipe out all of his. That's kind of like being a good hypocrite, isn't it? Do what I say, not as I do kind of doesn't really make sense. Amen. Are y'all still doing okay? You just <laughs> Y'all are quiet on me. Are you thinking? Is that what you're doing? Nothing to watch. It, it's so important that we clean the window. It, it's so important that our perception is right because if I stay with the view of God and, and 
this passage also talks about that Jesus is our propitiation. By the way, that's another judicial word. The Greek actually says expiation, which is a removal of. It's not just a, a covering over. It's not propitiation. That, again, this, this language, because most of the men that translated our Bibles were Calvinists, and most of them's view of God is that God is, is, is pretty ticked off and angry because, again, however you view God is how you view yourself and how you treat other people. And John Calvin's view of God was so messed up, he actually believed that God literally made sure that people were born to burn and some people were born for glory. So you were predestined before you were even born to burn for all of eternity and God already set that in motion before you were even born and he believed it to such a degree that he had a nemesis in Paris, a pastor by the name of James Selvinus and he wrote him a letter one day and he said, I think you're a little crazy. He said, this doctrine, I don't agree with it at all. And so they write letters back and forth and they're upset with each other but they're both believers in Jesus. Well, about 10 years later, Pastor Savinus from Paris shows up in Geneva, Switzerland. John Calvin hears about it, goes and gets a couple of his preacher buddies. They go drag the pastor out of the house he's in, take him to the city square, tie him to a pole, and set him on fire as a heretic. Seriously? I mean, nowadays, if people think you're a heretic, they just unfriend you on Facebook and call you a heretic. They don't set you on fire. But again, if if that's your God, if your God is okay with doing that, then my God's in my image because he's like me. And I'm okay doing that to another human. So if I'm okay doing that to another human, then so is God because however I see God is how I see myself and how I treat other people. Are you all still with me? You see, if, if, our, if the window is messed up, so how, how do we get, how do we get, get here through history and around the world because how do we get to this thing where we can get back to what Jesus came to reveal? See, John 1.18 is a passage that, man, it rocked me 15 years ago. I'd read it a hundred times, but I got to John 1.18 and it says this. It says, no man has seen God at any time until Jesus, who came from the Father, revealed him. That means Moses didn't get God right. Isaiah didn't get him right. Elijah didn't get him right. Abraham didn't. The law and the prophets, they were prophesied in part. They saw in part. They were still looking through a muddied glass because if you read that passage, it seems like a very big contradiction because five times in the Old Testament, people saw God. Abraham cooked God a meal and fed him. Moses said he talked with God face to face. Well, it's not that they were lying. God wrote. God inspired them to write that down. But what was happening is they were still looking through a veil. They, they did not see God clearly. They were looking through a curtain and they couldn't see who he clearly was and so they had to try to interpret what they were seeing. But Jesus shows up and Jesus said, let me, let me now show you who the Father really is. And all he talked about was his dad. All he did was try to get them to have family language. He rarely ever talked about his dad in the form of judge or judgment. Nearly everything, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's only one way to the Father. I know we always interpret that as there's only one way to heaven, and it doesn't say there's only one way to heaven, even though, relax, Jesus is the way to heaven. But it didn't talk about going to heaven. He said there's only one way for you to have a relationship with the Father, and it's through the Son. It's understanding sonship and understanding who he is and what he did. In my Father's house 
our many rooms. They asked him one day, they said, teach us how to pray. John's disciples, John taught us how to pray. You teach us how to pray, Jesus. He said, when you pray, pray our Father. But I want you to catch this. He told a bunch of unredeemed, unregenerate, unborn again, unsaved people to call him Father. Because the cross hadn't happened yet. The new covenant wasn't enacted. None of them were quote-unquote Christians. And he told a bunch of pagans, when you pray, call him dad. In other words, you're his sons. You just don't know it. Because you've thought all these years you're his slaves. You thought all these years that he barely wanted anything to do with you and wasn't even sure he liked you very much. He said, this is what you do. That's where all Jesus talked about, in my fathers, in my fathers. There's this, this is my father. I say nothing but that which I hear my father say. I do nothing but that which I hear my father do. And I'm, I'm preparing my message for my, my conference in May right now. And it's called The Father's Heart and all that keeps burning in me as Jesus said this one day. He said, I have not come to be served, but to serve. In other words, Daddy and I, we're not here to be served. Because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I say nothing but that which I hear my Father say. So in other words, the Father is saying also, I'm not here to be served. Now that'll shock you a little bit because... I was taught my whole life our purpose for being on the planet is to serve God. But the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of servants. It's a kingdom of sons who choose to serve. It's a different mindset. It's coming about it from family. So how do we get in this mess? And I'm, I'm going to run you through this, and then, and then I'll, I'll try to land this plane. Are we still doing okay? We've got to start in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, it says, and God created the heavens and the earth. And all through Genesis 1 and 2, the word for God is the Hebrew word Elohim. It means Lord, Master, Sovereign, King, Ruler. And so when God creates the earth and the animals and the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom and everything else, he calls himself the Ruler. But on the sixth day, he creates Adam, mankind, and he calls them Male and female. He called both of them Adam. And man called the woman Eve when she came out of his side. Adam wasn't necessarily the first man's name. Adam means mankind. First thing he does is when he creates mankind, he calls himself Lord God. Now let me tell you, I, I, I've been studying this book for a lot of years, and I didn't see this till just a couple years ago, and, and it just it exploded in me. It explained some stuff from Genesis to Revelation because I, I realized that when God creates the world, the universe, he says, I'm sovereign, I'm ruler. But when he created us, he doesn't call himself Elohim. He calls himself Yahweh Elohim. But to Jews, they never use the name Yahweh or Jehovah because, first of all, it's not pronounceable because there's no vowels. It's like Yahweh and Jehovah. You can't say the name. And so they would have never used that. So if you look in your concordance, it says Lord God is Jehovah Elohim or Yahweh Elohim. 
But when you study ancient Judaism, and to this day, matter of fact, to such a degree, uh, there, there's, a, there's a show that I, uh, I watch, like, uh, I think it came out during COVID. That's where I, I was able to see it. On, on Amazon, and then they just had the second one come out not too long ago, and, and it's, I think it's called Hunters, and it's Al Pacino, and Al Pacino, it, it's a bunch of Jewish people who were in the Holocaust, and they start hunting down like like they're, you know, the the the, uh, the Germans uh, that had slaughtered them and harmed them and everything else. It's very it's fascinating. I mean, I've always been fascinated with that kind of stuff. But what's interesting to me is whenever they talk about God, all the Jewish people, they call him Hashem. They don't call him Jehovah. They don't call him Yahweh. And the reason for that is because for thousands of years passed down through oral tradition, Jews have taught that when God called himself Lord God to Adam, he called himself Hashem Elohim. Now, the reason that's important is this word Hashem is a family word. It's a word that, like, if you've ever been around Jewish people, you'd hear it quite often. It would be a word for, like, an aunt or an uncle or a cousin, but especially for, like, a father or a mother. And in this, in this series on Amazon, which was so interesting to me, Al Pacino, every time he talked about God, almost every time, he called him Hashem. And, man, that was jumping at me. I was like, man, I know, now I know what that's talking about. So when God created us, he called himself Father creator. Why? Because God's heart was always for us to have eternal life. Eternal life is not a ticket to heaven, even though that's included. John tells us what eternal life is. This is eternal life, knowing the Father and knowing the Son. Eternal life is not that you get to live forever with God in heaven, even though, yes, that's a part of it. Eternal life is a relationship. It's always been about a relationship. It's not about rules on rocks. It's not about anything but a relationship. So if I want to understand Aeonius Zoe, eternal life, it comes down to the context of a father who wanted a family, that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is in heaven, and they're enjoying what theology calls the perichoresis, which is the divine dance of the triune Godhead, that God and the Son are so enjoying their love for each other that God, who is love, says, I'm not satisfied with just the love my son and I have for each other. Because I'm love, love needs to pour love into recipients. You can't be love and not pour that love out. So he said, I've got to create. I've got to create a family so I can pour more love into this family that's always been the heart of God. I was taught my whole life that God needs nothing. It's like, really? He doesn't need anything? He's love. Love needs to pour love out. It's like, man, my desire has always been for a family. So Genesis 1, he creates mankind. In Genesis 2, he forms what he created because God creates everything, spirit, and then he forms it in the natural from the dust of the earth. That's why you was before you is. That's why he could say to Jeremiah, before you were even formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. I knew you before you was. That's why faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith doesn't make something all of a sudden appear that never was. All faith does is bring something from the unseen into the seen because it's already there. You're just not aware. So God calls himself Hashem to such a degree. Man, this is powerful. Listen close, please. The first thing in Genesis 3 that God does 
with mankind, as it says, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, subdue, have dominion, replenish the earth. He gives them this mandate, but the first thing it says he did is he blessed them. Notice they hadn't done anything to deserve it. There wasn't anything that they, 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 they did by works. God just blessed them, and this word bless is a really interesting word. It's the Hebrew word Barak. This was way before there was an Obama. And the Hebrew word Barak is one of the seven Hebrew words for praise. I remember back in the 90s, I did a three-week series for my dad up in Michigan on the seven Hebrew words for praise. And the first word for praise in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 3 when it says, and God blessed them. But I didn't do anything with it because the word Barak means this. It means to bend the knee and to bow down. It means to bless. It means to praise. It means to affirm. So the first thing God did with his creation is he bowed before Adam and Eve. He blessed them and he began to praise them. And I didn't do anything with it because it felt blasphemous. I was like, that can't be right. I mean, I was, I was in my, I think, mid to late 20s, and I'm, I'm studying this, and I'm like, no, it's got to mean something else. The creator, God, because I was a part of a denomination that God had a W in his name. God. God, the creator, would never bow before us. We bow before him. He doesn't bow before us. That's messed up. That's blasphemy. Until it dawned on me one day that, Jesus showed up and he says, if you want to know what my dad looks like, check me out. And I don't say anything but that which I hear him say. And daddy and I, we didn't come to be served. We came to serve. And the last thing Jesus does is he bows before his creation. And he washes the feet. Then it hit me. His name is Hashem. It's dad. When we moved down to the Louisville area, we moved because my daughter took a position at a church in southern Indiana, which is a suburb of Louisville. And it's a church where we have our yearly conferences. I oversee the church. Uh, my sons in the faith, they, they lead it. And uh, she took our granddaughter. And so our house went up for sale the next day. My wife informed me very quickly. She said, you can do what you do from anywhere in the country. All you need is an airport. I want to be by the grandbaby. I said, me too. We're, we're those grandparents. Like, we can't get enough. Matter of fact, to such a degree, we were actually able to buy the house next door. Listen, my, my, my grandbabies are 60 feet from us, and it is heaven on earth. They're at our house more than they're at their parents' house. We, we, and we, we can't get enough of them. Those little girls got me twisted and tangled and my daughter says to me all the time, she said, Dad, you're so much better with the girls than you were with our, my brother and I. I said, well, of course, you and your brother, uh, you know, you already raised me. Come on, you think you raised your kids? Listen, I'm telling you, they're raising us at the same time. Stuff that used to bother me when in my 20s and 30s, I'm like, ah, oh, they spilled some. It's no big deal. They're kids. That's what they do. When I was 25, ah, I just used to lose my mind. I say grandparents are better parents. Well, yeah, just because we, we've learned to chill out. It's not that big of a deal. Calm down. But my granddaughter, she come over to our house. She pops in the door. And I'll tell her sometimes, hey, Kate, her name's Katie. I say, Katie, did you go downstairs and get Papa a root beer? No. 
You think she's there to serve us? Come on, think about this for just a minute. You know your children are not on the planet to serve you. Matter of fact, I'll say, wait, no, 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 but, but within five minutes, hey, Papa, I want some Lucky Charms. Papa, I want one of those. Papa, would you get me one of these? Papa, would you come down here on the floor and watch Disney with me? I'm like, baby, if I get on the floor, I got to get up. And then, and uh, could you just come up here and sit in the couch? No, Papa, come sit down here. So there I go, right down on the floor. I go get her her Lucky Charms. Then she, her little sister was born in 2020, and because it was right in the middle of COVID, we couldn't go up to the birthing room to see her, so we had to wait till our daughter brought her home, and my daughter brings her home in the car seat and puts her down on the floor and you know what this papa did this papa gets down on his knees and he bows he begins to barack her I get in my hands and my knees in front of her and I begin to tell her how beautiful she is I begin to tell her how lovely she is I begin to kiss her little face all to pieces because nothing tastes better than a baby and I just begin to just tell her how amazing she is why because it's what fathers do so why wouldn't we think that the father of all the fathers no wonder Jesus would say things like this. It's my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Daddy's not holding out on you. But you see, if we still view him through the lens of judge, someone I'm to be afraid of, then it's hard to have a relationship. You cannot be intimate with someone you're terrified of. It's impossible. You don't feel safe in the presence of someone you're afraid of. My dad, his favorite verse for a lot of years is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And I... I'd always say to him, but perfect love removes all fear, including that one. Fear might get people to God. It might be the beginning of wisdom, but it's not the middle and it's not the end. Because fear might get you to him, but fear can't keep you and fear can't complete you. Because you cannot be intimate with someone. If my wife would have told me that when I went away on a trip, when I came home and the garage door went up and my kids would have ran and hid in their closet, afraid because daddy was home, it would have tore my heart out. Instead, they were jumping up and down. Daddy's home. Daddy's home. But that's a lot of people's view of God. That's why a lot of our eschatology is all messed up. Because we're terrified for him to come back. Thinking daddy's going to come back like Rambo rather than truly understanding the heart of what Father represents and the heart of Father. And listen, it doesn't matter how old you get. My kids are grown. They make more money than I do. And we go out to eat, and guess who picks up the bill? Why? Because we serve the destiny of our children. We want them to go further than us. We want them to know more than us. I didn't have my first house till I was 33 years old. My daughter, by the time she was 23, owned five. Not an ounce of jealousy in me about that. I'm spurring them on. I'm, I help them get their first one. I'm going to do everything I can. Why? Because it's the Father's good pleasure. Because when your view of God is relational rather than judicial, it changes everything. I had a young man start to ask me to be a mentor to him. And he was a, he was a five-point Calvinist. And he wanted to call me every week and argue scripture. And I would never do it with him. And he gets so mad at me. And all I say to him, and he, he's getting ready, I'm, I'm going to Holland next week, and he's going to go with me. And uh, 
All I'd say to him, his name's Josh. I said, Josh, you have three children. How does that view of God work with you with your kids? I said, how does that work with your kids? Well, but the Bible, I said, how does it work with your kids? If Jesus came to reveal the one thing that we were completely ignorant of. See, Jesus did not come to change the Father's mind about us. He came to change our mind about the Father. He didn't, came, he didn't come to save Daddy and try to change his mind to finally be happy with us. It was always the Father searching and seeking for us. The prodigal is not about the sons. The prodigal is about the father. The father was the one always standing, waiting for the son to come home, ready to throw a party. The father's the one that doesn't even allow the son to repent. The son in his mind is saying, I'm going to tell my dad this, tell my dad that. Daddy doesn't even give him opportunity. He just runs and throws his arms around him, puts a robe on him, puts a ring on him, puts some new shoes on him, never even gives him an opportunity to confess anything. How to mess with your religious mind. Because the story's about dad, it's not about the kids. It's always been about dad. He's the father to the fatherless. So, so what happened? Let me, let, me, let me get to the crux of this. So why do we get all this messed up views of God? It's because a serpent came in the garden. And notice what the serpent did. The serpent speaks to man, kind, and he says this. Has not Elohim said? He dropped the Hashem. In other words, he deceived them into believing God is not your father creator who wants to have a relationship with you. He's a master and a ruler that you have to serve. He got them to think. Do you know that the root word for sin, the Greek word is hamartia? When you go back to the root form of the word sin, it means to live or believe a lie. That what happened in the garden is that they believed a lie about who God was. And then the serpent said, well, what else did he say? If you eat of this tree, you'll be like God. What they should have said is we already are. They were already in his image and already in his likeness. So the serpent deceived them into believing a lie about who God was and a lie about who they were. And it caused all the mess that we see around us. The other thing is this. Everything you read in the Bible from Genesis 4 all the way to John 1, listen to this closely, is all inspired by God or God breathed, but it's written through the lens of men and women trying to figure out how to have a relationship with a master, not sons enjoying fellowship with a father. And so if you're a slave, it's easy for you to think, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away because that's what a master does, but a father doesn't. Because we know it wasn't daddy taken away. It was Satan that was taken away, but Job didn't know there was a Satan because there wasn't a Satan until Second Chronicles. Nearly 1,500 years of Judaism, they had no devil. They had no Satan. That's why you read passages like Second Samuel 14, and it says God never takes life, but only 
gives life and devises ways to bring his wayward ones home. And then five chapters later, God opens the earth, swallows, and kills 5,000 people. I mean, I don't know about you, but that can get a little confusing to you. You're like, well, wait a minute. God never takes life, but he's killing folks over here. But if, if your view of God is God does all the good and God does all the bad because there is no Satan yet, then it's easier for you to think if it's good, it came from the gods. If it was bad, it came from the gods. And so if an earthquake happened and 100 people die, God did it. Why? Because God's a master, a taskmaster, someone I need to be afraid of. So, of course, they would write it down, but God didn't have them write it down just to show us who he is. A lot of the Old Testament was written to show us what he's not. Why? Because no man has seen God at any time. Until Jesus reveals him. So Jesus is who God is like. Jesus has always been who God is like. And if I don't have that window clean, and I think God is like this scary dictator, that he's going to get me, get me, get me, get me good, when I was a kid, we used to have a preacher, nothing against you all, but he used to come from the Carolinas. He'd come up into Michigan with his tent, and he'd hold a three-week revival. And I remember being five, six years old, sitting on the wooden pew in the front row, and he'd bring out that long, bony finger, and he said, God, tonight, God's going to get you, get you, get you. I mean, my, my whole view of God was, man, he's constant. Like Santa Claus, he knows when you're sleeping, knows when you're awake. He's gonna get you. You know, once in a while I'd hear that he's a good dad, but most of the time he was pretty, pretty terrifying. He was someone I never really felt safe with. Someone I ran from as hard as I could for six years because I couldn't reconcile what I felt inside and what I was being taught about him. Because the Jesus I met at five years old didn't seem like this guy that they're telling me about. Because this one seems like he's got some real anger issues. Seems like he's been PMSing for quite a while. He's just constantly in a bad mood. And so why would I get excited to want to have a relationship with him if he can't stand looking at me? He made me in his image and likeness, but yet he doesn't really love that image and likeness because he don't really like me because, as I was taught in Bible school, not everybody's a child of God. There's children of God and there's children of the devil because obviously the devil has a reproductive organ. Listen, the devil is not Zeus. He's not running around knocking up Hercules' mom. That's not how this works. That's called mythology. A son of the devil was a hyperbole. Literally, like, if your child is acting crazy and you look at them and say, you're acting like a little demon, they're not actually a demon, all right? It's, it's, it's language, all right? But do you realize that Adolf Hitler convinced a whole nation 
of Christian Germans, it was okay to slaughter Jews because Jews killed their Christ? Because Hitler claimed to be a follower of Jesus. I don't know if you knew that or not. Claimed to be a follower of Jesus. And he used the Bible, that verse, you are of your father the devil. And he said they're demon seed because they killed Christ. And because they're demon seed, we can kill them, we can rape them, we can do whatever we want to them. There were preachers in America in the 16, 17, and 1800s that taught the same thing about people of color. And they said we can enslave them because they're children of the devil and they're not children of God. But yet Paul on Mars Hill gets up and preaches in Acts 17 to a bunch of pagans. And he says, in him you live, in him you move, in him you have your being. For we are all God's offspring. Genos is the Greek word, children, family. Uh, let me help you a little bit in South Carolina. Kin. He said, we are all God's kin. There's nobody that's not a child of God. Nobody that's not loved by the Father. There's just two types of people. There's people that have believed it and received it. They've accepted it and they're enjoying the benefits of what it means to be a son. And then there's prodigals that don't know they're a son. And so they're living in the pig pen of sin because no one ever informed them that they're a son. The same thing happened in 1863 when President Lincoln made the, de uh, the Emancipation Proclamation. He set every slave free and said now it's illegal to have slaves, but people stayed slaves for more than three or four decades and they tell us why. The first reason was is because there were many who never heard the good news. They stayed a slave because no one told them they no longer had to be a slave. Secondly, there were masters that tried to keep them from hearing the good news. The God of this world has blinded the minds of men. Thirdly, were those that heard it but couldn't believe it because they'd been a slave so long they couldn't imagine themselves anything else but a slave. But legally, they had been set free. I just want to declare to you 2,000 years ago, Heaven made an emancipation proclamation that said, not only, I've read it to you in 1 John 2, that he's not only the propitiation for our sins, but our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. What Jesus did, he took care of for all of humanity, but not all of humanity enjoys it. Many have not heard it, and because they've not heard it, they're living like orphans when they're loved sons who don't know they're loved sons. This is how simple and beautiful the gospel is. Imagine you're 70 years old, and you were raised believing you were an orphan, you had no family, you were raised in the system, maybe you were molested in a foster home, and it led your life to a downward spiral of maybe drugs and alcohol and all kinds of crazy stuff. And at 70, someone informs you that you're actually not an orphan, that you actually have a father, and that father has been seeking and searching for you because he seeks lost sheep. You know what a lost sheep was? It means if the sheep was lost, it means at one time it was part of the pack. Because we were found in Christ before we were ever lost in Adam. Woo. According to Ephesians 1, that you were found in him before the foundations of the world. Chosen in him. Why? Because that's the heart of a father to his kids. You never leave the heart. That is why Jeffrey Dahmer's father still showed up to his incarceration. And he had a crazy kid, eating people. You can't get no more demonic than that. But that's still my baby. Every parent in here knows if they've ever had a child that has suffered from addiction, that has gone through difficult things, no matter what they do, that's still, that's still my child. And you don't think, let me tell you, when I picked up my daughter, 
28 years ago for the first time, my whole theology got rocked to my core. I picked up that little girl. I was immediately smitten, and everything in me said, there is no way this little girl will ever do anything that will keep me from passionately loving her. She might not act like an eagle heart. She might run away from me. She might want nothing to do with me. But my heart is going to constantly be chasing her down. I'm going to stalk that little girl. She ain't going to be able to get away from me. Chase her to the ends of the earth. Maybe that's why David would say, where can I go from your presence, Dad? If I ascend to the highest heaven, you're there. If I even make my bed in hell, you even go all the way to hell. That's why David said, you won't leave my soul in hell. Think about that one for a minute. That means his soul was there and it wasn't left. Oh, that's good news right there. In other words, you can't get away from my presence. Because a father is constantly, passionately a good father. I see a lot of us have a struggle with this because we didn't have a good father. We had a father that wasn't present. We had a father that was angry. And so when we think of father, I've said this for years, most of the church is cool with Jesus. It's a Doobie Brothers mentality. Jesus is just all right with me. Everybody under 30, Google that later. (laughs) But his dad, still a little terrifying. Holy Spirit said this to me 12 years ago, and I'll, I'll stop with this. He said, everywhere you go, I want you to do specifically two things. Number one, I want you to remove all fear-based theology because fear and love cannot coexist. And number two, I want you to repaint the father to the church. Actually share with the church what Jesus is actually talking about. And he came to bring Hashem back to us to such a beautiful way. And hear this, and and, uh, if you'd start playing because that will finally shut me up. God bless you. Paul put it like this in the book of Romans. He said, there's something that's screaming inside of every human. There's something calling out. And he said, what it's calling out is not Jesus, Jesus, not Lord, Lord, not even my God, my God, but what's crying out of every human is Abba, Father. The word Father literally means originator or source. That's why when Jesus said, call no man father, he wasn't saying you can't call your dad father. That's silly because, you know, Paul said, honor your father and your mother. I mean, obviously it's okay to call someone father. What he's saying is don't call any human your source. My job as a parent is not to be the source for my children. It's to be a resource to my children. I'm just the moon. The purpose for the moon is to reflect the sun. My job is to point them back to the source. Not to point them to become like me, it's to point them to become like him. And my job is to reflect him as much as I can. That is why we need natural parents and spiritual parents, because they're not there to be a source, but they are there to be a resource to help us become what we're supposed to be. But what I've what I've found in all these years now of traveling is that most people, if they've been in church for a little while, the the window is smudged. Because a lot of times we preachers who are well-meaning, not trying to harm anybody, 
who preached a Jesus or a father that caused the window to be a little smudged. Sincerely. I don't, I don't ever get upset at my dad. My dad did the best he could with what he knew. But now I know better. And I don't preach what I preach for my prosperity. Because if I'd have kept my mouth shut about a whole lot of stuff about 10 years ago, I'd have a whole lot more money in my account, I guarantee you, where I was heading. I preach what I preach for my posterity. I don't want my children or grandchildren to be raised with the terrifying God. Did you know that right now, most major universities that have psychology programs are opening up whole new wings to train psychologists and counselors to counsel people with religious trauma. They're calling it religious PTSD. It's people that have been raised in churches that were full of fear. That everything sent you to hell. That God was constantly mad at you. Everything you did wrong. He, the hammer was coming down. And we wonder why most of the world is running from that. Because it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not, it's not an angry father. I love to sit next to people on, on an airplane and tell them about this good father that according to 2 Corinthians 5, reconciled them, which means brought them back into favor and is not counting their sins against them. They always look at me and say, huh, that's not what Christians tell me. Christians told me God don't like me. He can't even look at me. He doesn't want anything to do with me until I repent and turn from all my wicked ways. And I said, well, that's actually not what the New Testament actually teaches. Paul actually said God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. That it's church people that hold your sin against you, not God. Most of the world is not running from Jesus. They're running from crazy church people. Could we get honest right there? I never ran from Jesus. I'd sit around getting stoned with my friends, telling them they're going to see me preach on TV. Couldn't get away from Jesus. I'd, I'd, I'd experience too much. Man, was I running from Christians. Man, was I running from church. I was running from this God they were talking about that I never experienced. Because the one on the inside of me wasn't like this one they're telling me about. Maybe that's why Jesus said, it's the Holy Spirit that will lead you into all truth. Not your wrong interpretation of the Bible. Maybe if we listen more to the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't be so confused. Maybe if we let the Holy Spirit actually minister his goodness and his life to us. John said, we, we don't have an advocate with the Father. We have a comforter. <laughs> we have a helper. So he's there to comfort us in our sin? No, he's there to comfort you, to remind you that he took all your sins away. He's there to help you. That when you sin, you've got a helper along with the Father to constantly remind you you're better than that. Awake to righteousness and, and stop sinning. Not stop sinning and awake to righteousness. Awake to the fact that you're already righteous because of what Jesus did and then you'll stop sinning. Awaken to his, his goodness and awaken to his life. And I've, I've gotten to a place in my life where I have no problem telling people, I said, if I am deceived, I am happily deceived. I walk in more freedom today than I'd ever known all my years growing up in church. Understanding a loving father has revolutionized 
everything about my life. I can't wait to talk to him today. I'm not terrified of him. I'm not running from him. Because I don't have a judge sitting on a throne. I have a father sitting in the living room. And he's just waiting for me to come and and sit in his lap. And just enjoy his goodness. What do you think would happen if the whole body of Christ out the window cleaning up that that's the God they saw? I'm convinced we'd turn the world upside down in a matter of months. When we start telling people about Abba and we stop telling people about the Greek god Janus. Remember Janus? He turned this way and he's smiling. He turns this way and he's scowling. Most of us have been taught a Janus face god. Or for those who are younger, Tommy Two-Face from Batman. That's many people's view of God. But that's not who he is. He's a good, good father. We've started to sing about it. We've started to realize it. A lot of times we still don't believe it because rather than see Hashem Elohim, we're still believing the lie of the serpent. That he's just Elohim. Now, now don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that our kids get to a certain age and they don't serve. My kids got to a certain age. I expect them to pick up the room. But they only begin to serve me because I first serve them. That's why the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of servants. It's a kingdom of sons and daughters who choose to serve because the parents were the examples of laying down their lives. Jesus and the Father are our example. And if we're going to have an encounter, we need to have an encounter with the right Father. Not the terrifying one, but the one whose light, life, and love, not just just righteous and holy, because all of those other three will happen once you understand his love. But you'll understand his righteousness through his love. You'll understand his justice through his love. And you'll understand his holiness through his love. And that changes everything. Bow your heads, would you? Father, I thank you tonight. Well, I thank you that you love us more than we could ever comprehend. Matter of fact, you told us that your desire is that through the Apostle Paul that we might know what is the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of your love with all the saints so that we might know the fullness of God. The fullness of God is not speaking in tongues. That's the down payment. The fullness of God is knowing the fullness of your love. And Lord, I ask tonight with every one of your sons and daughters in this building that, that you just clean the window up. Remove from us our wrong ideas of who we think you are. Remove from us the fear and the terror and help us just experience and encounter what a good father really, really looks like. And we'll thank you for it, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'll do something with you. Would you stand on your feet for a moment?